Hi, I'm Gordon Lamp here with The Real Finds Podcast, the podcast series where we interview key entrepreneurs, scientists, and activists, shaping the real estate industry and as a result, our world. In today's podcast, we'll be speaking with Kyle Shoemaker. Kyle is Managing Director at Affordable Housing Investment Brokerage, Inc. Affordable Housing Investment Brokerage, Inc.'s sole purpose is the direct confidential sale of affordable housing investments. They're driven by a passion for maximizing client wealth and serving an industry that provides a vital social need. On the podcast, we discuss industry best practices, success stories, and we tackle myths, misconceptions, and challenges facing the affordable housing industry. It's well worth a listen. Hey, Kyle. Thanks for hopping on the podcast today. Pleasure. Glad to be here. So can we start off by uh, having you introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. Uh, My name is Kyle Shoemaker. I am the uh, founder and managing director of a boutique uh, real estate brokerage that is specialized in selling uh, investment property in the affordable housing space. So when people hear affordable housing, they don't often hear investment as well. So can you tell me a little bit about how that process works and what, what it's like investing in affordable housing? Sure. Well, there are a lot of different ways to define affordable housing, first off. And so in the the way that my firm defines affordable housing, sometimes people say capital A affordable <laughs> housing to really mean deed-restricted uh, multifamily or senior housing properties, okay, where there is going to be some type of um, restriction around either the rent that can be charged and or the income level of the tenants. There are various programs to accomplish this. Uh, We focus in really the two biggest ones that are out there are uh, the low-income housing tax credit or LIHTC or uh, what people refer to as a project-based Section 8 contract or a housing assistance payments contract that will be uh, Section 8 subsidy tied to a building specifically. And so that that's what we deal in. And so the investment side of it, though, is that those programs uh, do not lead to government-owned housing. Okay, a lot of people hear affordable housing and they think the classic housing projects of public housing that historically uh, was pretty rough places for, for people to live. and take care of. But what these other programs are really uh, public-private partnerships where the government provides some type of help to a real estate investor or developer to build or renovate a property. And in exchange for that assistance uh, from the government, then the developer investor is agreeing to abide by limitations that will make the property more affordable. So it's a specialization from the investment and development side. That's uh, a business model where people go out and do deals in various ways with various uh, forms of assistance and uh, can be a very uh, good investment model if you know how to do it. So I know we're going to get back to your investment model and maybe some potential case studies, but uh, for our audience who doesn't know, um, what's what's the difference between doing something um, 
uh, in a LIHTC or a Section 8 model versus doing it in a different model? Sure. Well, it's really mostly in what the process is to be approved to receive the assistance, okay, whichever one it is. In the case of the LIHTC, the tax credit, to actually use that tool to build or renovate something, there's a pretty intense application process that takes a lot of know-how. It's a very highly specialized process. Um, it becomes less specialized for an investor to purchase a property that is already restricted by the tax credit. Even in that case, though, you still need to be approved by the uh, state housing finance agency, which is the agency that oversees that program in each state to purchase and run the property. Um, with the Section 8 contracts, uh, those are the most of them are regulated by HUD. Some are administered by other local agencies, but for the most part, that's a HUD federal program. And to purchase a property that receives that assistance, you need to apply to have that contract assigned uh, to you or your, your investing entity in order to purchase and take over that property. Okay, so that's just getting in the door. And then you have to uh, know how to manage your property within the limitations of the programs, which in both cases means qualifying the income of the tenants to make sure that they are at a level that qualifies to receive the assistance and being able to deal with various forms of uh, physical and um, book and record inspections from the agencies to make sure that you're complying with the the regulations set forth. So it's specialized in, in a couple of different ways in terms of getting in and running the properties, but ultimately it's still investment real estate. Okay? You're trying to uh, make a return on money you put into the deal through uh, hopefully cash flow of having money left over each year, of having different fees, running the management, and you know, hoping that you can grow an NOI over time and grow the value of the properties. So Kyle, you've had a solid track record of uh, successful deal making, successful management, and a number of successful projects. Can you go over just maybe one or two projects that have been particularly successful and kind of how that process works? Sure, sure. And just to be completely clear, my only role is a broker. I don't own or operate properties myself. I have always uh, kept the distinction between that as being a totally different business and, and one that I don't work in in, in this space. Um, so I, I'm a seller's rep. Okay? When someone is in a position that they need to sell one of these pretty complicated assets, I develop the know-how and the track record to be able to execute on marketing and selling these properties in an efficient way. Um, you know, successful deals are you know, ones where somebody needs to exit something that's in the, the sweet spot of what we do. And we've spent, you know, my company's been in business over 10 years now. So we spent a long time knowing who the players in the industry are who are qualified and aggressive to do these deals so we can get to them quickly. 
Um, recently, I sold a uh, 170 unit senior uh, project based Section 8 property in Rockford, Illinois for a long term client. Uh, family business. I sold two other properties for him over the last 12 years, and he's moving towards retirement. This was the last asset in the portfolio. Did not have children in the business. It's time for him to move on. Uh, the property needed uh, some work. It's 40 years old, roughly now. He definitely had taken, done a good job maintaining it, but had not done a complete recapitalization, complete renovation. And so he hired me to market and sell the property. And through our process and history of knowing who, knowing how to size up these deals, knowing how to get to the people who know how to do them, within a month and a half or so of a marketing process, we had, I, I think, 15 different offers. And this was early last year. And so we were able to compare not just, of course, the price somebody was willing to pay, but compare the track records of the buyers so we could be making an assessment of how likely the deal was to go through. And sometimes in this space, uh, like all real estate, but maybe a little more here, people selling will want to have an idea of what the plan for the property going forward is and know that it's in good hands because these are, are sensitive um, situations when there's a senior Section 8 property in a town that somebody's going to still be in that town. Maybe they have other business interests or just live there. They want to make sure that it's taken care of. And so we, you know, through the classic brokerage model of creating competition, we were really able to carefully select a buyer who was able to pay a, a large fair price to make the seller's business successful and had a very successful plan of using the low-income tax credit to do real renovation to make the, the property viable for the foreseeable future. Um, no, so that was one that closed uh, early this year, even after going through a bunch of interest rate movement while we were under contract. So that was that was a very successful project, and you know around the same timeline we had a a senior but not Section Eight tax credit property in Burlington, Vermont, that we were able to execute with the same process. Okay, which you know, Burlington, Vermont, is not a market that I knew well prior to uh, working on this opportunity, but the the assets are so specialized that. People who know how to buy them will go to any market, okay? And it's more important to have a buyer who understands the programs rather than the local real estate. So that's a big part of why our business model has been able to be replicated throughout the country. We've closed in 36 different states because we know people who are targeting senior tax credit properties of a certain size. And we actually sold the Burlington, Vermont property to a group that's based in Chicago that is expanding their operations throughout the country. So you mentioned uh, viable opportunities are relatively consistent in terms of having certain characteristics. And I, I wanted to follow up on that. So what are the kind of characteristics that make for a viable investment opportunity in affordable housing? Either scale or 
infrastructure to deal with a lack of scale. <laughs> okay. Which is to say the the deal means be big enough or uh, be near places where other people, where, you know, the people who understand the market might be nearby. Right. Which is to say the, you know, I was able to, the Burlington, Vermont property that I sold to a Chicago group was a north of $20 million deal. Right. That's why this Chicago group was willing to go there and take it on. If it had been a smaller opportunity, it, the deal wouldn't have worked the same. Um, that being said, we work on just about anything that is restricted, okay, even when it's small. You know, we do a handful of deals that'll be up north of $20 million in value. Uh, most of what we sell is probably more like 5 to $11 million, you know, private client, uh, family investment company type properties. But we, we sell properties that are a million dollars in value or less when they have the restrictions that, that we focus on. And so those can be more difficult if they're uh, remote. You know, if we sell 30 units in, in Chicago or in Atlanta, there's still plenty of uh, willing participants to make a market. When we are working on smaller deals in smaller towns, it can be more difficult to get the attention of people who know how to do these deals. Okay, because going back to the whole niche and that the uh, experience is highly specialized, the experience required is highly specialized to be able to execute these deals, um, the buyers can be a little choosy about where they spend their time and they may not put want to put a lot of effort into something that's smaller and more remote. So talking about within the niche, um, there's certainly a lot of different asset classes and, and a lot of different large investors that go around, but finding someone within the asset class and also with the capital and the know-how to take on projects can be difficult. How do you find uh, potential buyers for these large deals? Is it typically folks that you work with on a regular basis or um, what, what is your methodology uh, for taking on uh, that task? Well, yeah, I, I'd say that that's, probably my primary function of the work I do. Okay. So uh, how do we do? We spend all of our time <laughs> understanding who, who the people are who can take these on. Okay. So that, you know, we know how to size up the deal and uh, effectively give an optimistic presentation of what the opportunity is. But where our real work comes in is that we, I've spent a whole career and my team with me on interacting with the players who are in this market or entering this market and know how to do it so that when I get the right assignment, uh, it's, well, sometimes say I already know the buyer. I just haven't identified who it is. Yeah. Okay. The, it, really, the basic model of starting this years ago is uh, you know, that it's public record who owns and operates these restricted properties. And I went into a market and looked up every owner and operator and started working on trying to develop a relationship to see where I could help them. And that has uh, continued to snowball from there. So going and talking about things snowballing, one of the uh, things that you hear about is that there's been a real um, pushback in a lot of communities and almost a snowball effect against affordable housing. 
uh, in terms of, uh, you know, political pressure, local municipal pressure, some, you know, economic blowback in terms of uh, home prices and areas. And I'm curious, how has that affected your business and how has it affected the affordable housing investment market in general? That those factors really most significantly impact new development, I would say. Where somebody is trying to uh, bring a project to fruition that didn't exist before, and in affordable housing, as we're discussing it today, that's primarily going to be from uh, building from the ground up. There are not new HUD Section 8 contracts. Okay, the contracts that exist exist. There's been some potential recently in, in budgets that they may be able to add more, but for all intents and purposes, there are not new Section 8 contracts. And so you're probably mostly looking at a situation of, of building something with the tax credit where you're going to deal with that neighborhood political pressure of the nimbyism, of the not my backyard attitude, that is something affordable housing developers constantly have to deal with. Um, now, Directly, my business, I wouldn't say it's totally impacted by that because I'm really dealing with existing projects that, that aren't, that you're not completely changing the use where you're going to have to go and get approval from a town council and have a, a lot of people fighting against it. Um, now, what, how I like to present this issue, though, in particular when I'm talking to broader real estate, audiences of multifamily investors in particular, but people who are in investment real estate of any kind, really, is that I think it's important, not just from a societal perspective, but to protect the real estate business, it, supporting affordable housing, I think, is essential. Okay? It has become more and more apparent and more a conversation in media and wider real estate circles that the imbalance of supply and demand for affordable housing is truly at crisis levels there this is it's going to be essential for governments to react and try to help that imbalance in crisis the best programs we have for it are programs like the low-income housing tax credit to build new housing to try and address this issue. What I think is critical is to understand that tax credit housing frequently doesn't look any different than other apartments. It can add to a community. It's not like building a classic housing project that many people might envision. Uh, you know, that's important to understand. And I think it's important to grow these programs to help prevent reactive rulemaking from governing bodies. Specifically, I'm thinking about rent control laws there, where I like to say to a room of market rate multifamily investors, you guys should be contributing to lobbying efforts to support and grow the low-income tax credit as a tool to build affordable housing in a profitable uh, entrepreneurial partnership way and help prevent the risk that you might have of having your uh, local governing body enact some type of rule that's going to hurt your investment in a desperate effort to 
work against this crisis. So can I follow up on that? Because I think that's a great point that you just made. Um, where's What's the connection between rent control and affordable housing? Because I, I think sometimes there are people that are in our space that kind of see them as as working in tandem or working kind of in conflict. And I'm curious if you can expand on that point. The way they interact is that rent control is a form of attempting to create affordable housing. Right? That's saying that rents are going well beyond in many markets, a level that can be paid by many people you know, in working class jobs. So that's a government saying, we're going to limit what a landlord's allowed to charge in an effort to have housing available to people in working class or um, middle, lower, whatever end of the spectrum isn't able to afford the housing. So it's a tool to attempt to help that problem, but it is ultimately proving to not be particularly effective because it's damaging to the people it may be retroactively um, applied to. Okay, Somebody entered into a multifamily investment with a certain amount of money allocated to it, a certain plan for maintaining and operating it, and budgeting based on what the rents are in the market. And if all of a sudden they aren't allowed to charge those rents, and that's going to impact every other aspect of the business. And ultimately drives a lot of investment capital away from to um, not make as many opportunities to create the housing that's needed. Whereas a program like the tax credit is utilized by a entrepreneur who understands how to use the program. They're using private money and getting an incentive to work together effectively with the government to be in a profitable way, creating restricted housing where they know all the rules up front. It's very different than rent control. There is a cap on the rents that owner can charge, but they knew exactly what that was going to look like going into the process, and they received a incentive to do so. So knowing what it's like to go into the process, uh, before we get to our final four, I'm curious if you could take us through the process of how you search out and find investors for some of these potential projects, because that's one of the things you've been particularly successful at. And I think some of our users and some of our listeners would be very interested in. Well, sure. Um, I mean, what, uh, the way I find people to do these deals is I find everybody who's done these. <laughs> okay, that, that's how specialized it is. That I part of why I like my business and why I can uh, I can execute it with a small team is that I'm not going out to find a guy with money and convince him to invest in affordable housing or teach him. I actually very specifically don't do that. The specialization required to execute these is enough that uh, it's unusual that new people are entering space. And so my business is finding people who know how to do it and get into it. So I, I know we're getting to the end, but uh, it's always it's always a pleasure to go through the final four. And we have to have you on again because it's been a pleasure to have you on. So um, in terms of the first final four question, it's always a favorite of mine. Uh, 
where do you see commercial real estate and affordable housing investing going in you know, the next 10 years? I'm optimistic. The attention to the sector has only increased in the time I've been in the business. The, uh, the pandemic really ended up escalating investment interest when there was massive job loss for a period of time right after the lockdowns. We very quickly were in a position of getting multiple calls from professional uh, multifamily investors saying, hey, I've been interested in affordable housing for years, but now we're committing to learning this space and a number of them successfully have. So bringing more attention, more money and ideas to the sector, I, I'm optimistic will only help. Uh, the awareness of the underlying problem that the business is trying to solve has only grown and has really large bipartisan support in the government for programs like the tax credit as a proven job creator investment vehicle that creates housing. Uh, so I'm while the problem runs very deep and we're nowhere close to addressing it, I'm optimistic that the awareness is going to bring more solutions as more money and attention is, is paid to the sector. So I know we've gone forward into the future. One of the fun things about our podcast is we also like to take it back. And so uh, w when you're leaving high school, if you, if you could have given yourself a one minute uh, little bit of advice, what would be the advice that, that you'd give young Kyle? It's tough. I think the, the what what jumps to mind though is is making sure that you celebrate small achievements along the way. You know, particularly with real estate broadly being such a long term endeavor, no matter what your function is, right? Whether you're making an investment and buying property, or or being a starting off a brokerage career or other service career, you know you. It's, it's impossible to say, I'm going to go in the office today and work my butt off and get this big check, yeah. right? So you have to make sure that you understand how to celebrate small victories along the way and, and really, you know, have, you, you need to ultimately have a vision of what your life can be in that given career and a belief that it's possible. And I, I think I knew that, but had, that's the type of thing that you could never have reinforced enough when you're embarking on this type I of couldn't thing. agree more. Uh, There's so many times in this business where uh, uh, it seems like uh, that that next commission or that next deal is, a, is you know, an eon away, and uh, you just got to keep churning because it'll eventually be there. Um, in terms of uh, eventually getting to important things, though. Uh, one of the great tidbits of advice we like to find from some of our successful real estate folks and real estate influencers is um, a little bit of knowledge that they can gain from a book. Um, and uh, I'm a voracious reader. Many of our listeners are big voracious readers. And so um, uh, I'm curious, if, is there one or two real estate books that may have influenced you or it could be business or, or life books in general. It's hard to drill down because I, I read all the time as well. I think the advice I like to give, though, is to not limit your reading to 
to business or self-help, though I think those are very important topics. And I've read a lot uh, about developments in psychology, I, I think is a fascinating topic that's important to life. But I think that having a variety of topics and styles to read can really help round you as a person, which ultimately will help you in your business deals. I recommend people to read novels to you know, understand how people make decisions and, and stories of getting into someone else's shoes, I think can really, really help with business a lot. But the you know, more specific business book that's a quick read that I really enjoy and has framed a lot of what I've done over the last 10 years and has probably become even more important all the time is uh, called Essentialism okay. by an author named Greg McCohen with the real premise of being, you know, we have so many distractions. How do you decide what's essential? Why is it important to decide what's essential? Uh, you know, one small tidbit in the book that I tell people that's interesting is that the word priority in its original form did not have a plural. Okay? We like to say, what are my priorities today? And a big point of this book is that you really can't have priorities. Pick a priority, singular, work on that, and then you move on. So I think it's a, a great simple way to frame your thinking about how how you approach your your life look i think that's a wonderful point um there are so many of us in real estate that are going all different ways and sometimes we're not focused on what really matters um so uh, uh that sounds like a great read and i certainly need to pick it up um uh the the last question is probably the most important question of the whole podcast. And it's the reason why we started this podcast was to come and identify uh, individuals that are influencing real estate and then, you know, bring them on and get a little tidbit of advice. Um, and uh, I don't think there's any better person than someone who's in the arena to tell us someone uh, who might be influencing their space. So Kyle, who should we have on the podcast next? No, I don't know if I have a good specific answer on who to have in the podcast, but I'd say more of the, the profile. Okay, you've gotten a little bit of a flavor for how the world of affordable housing works from the perspective of a broker and marketer. It, it'd really be great for you to have a developer, somebody who's working with a developer who uh, maybe is at a point in their career where they've got a long way to go, you know, younger in their career and have learned how things have been done and see how they're evolving as the programs offered evolve and our environment evolves with inflation and interest rate increases and all the normal real estate drivers impact us too. But uh, there's a lot of innovative work that has been done to create housing in a profitable way that's contributing to a community and i'm not prepared to give you specific names today but i i promise i could come up with a few well what we're going to do is we're going to make sure that um uh Kyle re um that we get something from you in the end it, it has to be from email and uh or you know uh, some other method but we're gonna we're gonna follow up on uh, on that question well, I, I, you know, one group I have in mind is in Chicago, okay, Evergreen yeah. Real Estate, and they, I could tell you, they have a couple of different developers, but 
I think they have been very innovative in a number of ways, but they were the developer who actually partnered with, um, I believe, the Chicago Housing Authority to do a couple projects where housing was built into very interesting. buildings in the last year or two, which I think is an absolutely fascinating concept and I believe has been very successful so far. And so the the guys there, and I'm not sure who the exact person would be who'd be best to talk about those projects in particular, but that's something we're proud of. Kyle, that's, that's wonderful advice, and we, we'll have to reach out to Evergreen. Um, so the last question, and this is the second most important question of the podcast, is uh, how does someone reach out to you um, via you know, email, uh, via phone? Uh, what's the best point of contact? I, I, my contact open is, is my contact information is pretty open and public on my company website. You know, people can find me pretty quickly and I always take the time to respond to a thoughtful inquiry, no matter how it comes in. Kyle, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today and we have to have you on in the future. My pleasure. Thanks again to Kyle. We appreciate his insights. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like, five-star rating, or review. Your comments, interactions, and subscriptions truly matter and help us continue to provide quality guests. You can follow us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gordon Lamphere with The Real Finds Podcast. Thank you for listening.